you are beautiful beyond description. I think we kind of uh, sanitize our conception of God and heaven sometimes. Think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in nature and multiply that by infinity. That's what God looks like. Uh, we talk about worthy. Worthy is the lamb that comes from uh, Revelation 4 and 5, which I always call the control room scene. Because before you get into all the blood and guts of uh, the tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 18 in the second advent, the end times, you see the scene in heaven. God is cool, calm, and collected, totally in control. And it's there's music, and it's loud music. So the uh, assumption loud music is, uh, is bad or something isn't true necessarily at all, since it's loud music in heaven. All kinds of instruments and all kinds of colors. I mean, you've got a first century man, John, trying to describe an infinitely beautiful sight. So let's not sanitize uh, God or or heaven too much. Let's also remember, you know, we go through the attributes of God. You know, we can uh, talk about two juniors live. God is is true. He's real. He's triune. He's transcendent. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's just, righteous, sovereign. He's loving. He's immutable. He's veracity, he's everlasting life, eternal life. But uh, we can understand God truly because he's revealed himself through Scripture, the written word, and through Jesus Christ, the living word. But we cannot understand God wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And Jack, you never will. People say, when I get to heaven, I know everything. No, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, knows everything. Omniscience will never know everything. You can spend all eternity being endlessly fascinated with the being of God, much less the new heaven, new earth. So we got a lot to look forward to. Let's keep that in mind. Uh, the world tries to shrink our conception of God down. As we're in the Word, we got to get a bigger and bigger conception of God, His goodness, His grace, His love, His mercy uh, in our hearts and lives. And to that end, let's look at the Word of God for the next 45 minutes or so. How about that? Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Matthew 5, verse 20. And let me start here as we look at some snippets, slivers of the Sermon of the, on the Mount. At Cameron University, before the students give their first formal speeches, and I, I know Dustin probably remembers me saying something like this, I try to encourage them. You know, the fear of public speaking is one of the, the major fears of Americans. I mean, all the surveys show that in addition to taxes or cancer or operations, things like that, or heights, uh, fear of public speaking is right up there at the top. Sometimes it's at the top of the list. And so I realize a lot of the students are pretty psyched out about giving a formal speech. So I always tell them, look, I'm not going to grade this thing like an Olympic judge Judges, figure skaters. What's the problem with that? Well, the East Germans always voted down the Americans by, you know, on purpose. But, you know, typically they're looking for stuff not to like. You make one little mistake and you got a big problem if you're trying to win a gold medal. I'm not looking for that. And I tell them nobody gives a perfect speech. Uh, if you analyze, and people have done this, grammatically analyze the Gettysburg Address, which is typically seen as the greatest commemorative speech in American history, you can critique some of his grammar, okay? If you listen to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, 
Twice he loses his place. But nobody noticed. It didn't matter. He was grabbing them by the heart. I dream of a time when men will be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. They're not saying that anymore on the far left. But that's uh, that's powerful. So I would say this. Nobody gives perfect speeches except for one somebody. And they'll look at me and say, you know, Sermon on the Mount? Now, some of that goes right over their head, but you and I know what I mean. The one somebody is our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at his probably his best-known speech, sermon, discourse, message. I don't really like the term sermon that much um, uh, or speech that much. Let's make this his most famous presentation. Now, watch this. Uh, this is beyond A to Z. We're looking at the life of Christ, K, beyond A to Z. And uh, we looked at letter M, which was messages, and the Lord Jesus would have preached this basic content tens, probably hundreds of times during his Galilean ministry. But today, even though we surveyed that in the A through Z system last year, I want to look at four selected slivers of especially important affirmations in that passage. But we're going to have to be ready to go here, ready to launch here spiritually to be feeding on God's word this morning. So let's pray we will be teachable to God's word. It's the text, not the teacher we should be focusing on. And let's also pray for those who protect and serve us locally and internationally and everything in between. So abstract thought warmer upper. I have a bit of a bone to pick with some of you people. I think uh, nobody but Nicole really appreciated, maybe Summer appreciated the the uh, puns with punch last week. And... Uh, so I realize I have to really step my game up. I gotta move it up a notch. And so I'm gonna to try to do that. Now the reason everybody looks so happy there is this is, uh, BK. You've heard of BC, before Christ? This is before they had any kids. <laughs> That's my kids before they had kids. Look how happy. Look how young they look. No pressure. No problems. But with that as a backdrop, top three things no Christian father has ever said to his children. Number three, son, you want to be a pro football player? I had always hoped you'd be a pro poker player. (laughs) Number two, you skip school today? When I was your age, I skipped school all the time, so don't worry about it. Uh, These are not laugh out loud funny. I make no such claim. These are just attempts to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. And then number one, hold your applause as the last one. I can't believe you asked your mom for a baby turtle. I was going to surprise both of you with a baby elephant. Okay, Sermon on the Mount. Um, this content is a perfect message. It is a genius message. It is designed for two separate audiences. It's designed for the crowds, for unbelievers, convinced Because they've been told by the Pharisees, their best might be good enough to get them to heaven. And he's got to blow that away. And then also he's speaking to believers, the disciples, and for Carol Wanzer, and for uh, uh, David Bearden, and for uh, Wendy um, Wendy, uh, Powers. By the way, you know, Murray's older brother is here today. Uh, He's... uh, 
he's sitting next to him. They look very similar. You can, Murray's kind of the taller one there as he sits up there. Now, Murray's been gone so long. It seemed like forever, but it's only like two or three weeks. But he's was gone long enough to grow a complete beard. And I really admire that because uh, I can't do that. And frankly, I don't want to do it. But that's just me, okay? I'm not a beard guy. But uh, you know what? Everybody, including our Lord, had a beard. Uh, Isaiah says the Messiah, they pulled the the hair, the beard out of his face just to torture him. And that's part of what the Romans did in connection with the crucifixion. But anyway, yeah, this is a genius sermon because he's got two distinct audiences and he hits both of them right between the eyes in a good way. So, you know, last time when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the structure and just let you know it is very well organized. It's got an introduction, a conclusion, a purpose statement, the core teaching, and then a practical purpose statement. Or you could put it this way, what does all that mean? Well, he's telling Mike and Jan as believers to be spiritual salt and light, not just at church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but in the world. And then he emphasizes people need a righteousness we can't produce by being religious or doing good stuff. That the righteousness, that's the fruit of salvation, isn't just obeying rules and submitting to rituals. It's the function of a relationship with the Savior. That righteous people treat others even unbelievers, even people we disagree with, with basic respect. And then he emphasizes again, religion can't produce the righteousness you need to go to heaven. That's why we need a Savior. So let's look at these passages. And you're looking at uh, Matthew 5.20. But as I said, let's flip back to maybe the first two verses of Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he's talking to the crowds and to his disciples in this message with two different emphases for different purposes. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, Mount Marin, which comes straight out of the Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee there near Capernaum, just a big slope that goes up toward the Golan Heights. And after he sat down, which is the teaching position, sitting down was when the rabbis would be teaching, so that's a teaching position, he's not resting, his disciples came to him. Okay, he's got a big crowd, he goes up the mountain, his disciples are the closest one, uh, he sits down to teach them the introduction, his disciples. They're already believers. So the Beatitudes, blessed are these people, these people, that people. Uh, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The crowds are not the salt of the earth. The crowds, the unbelievers are not the light of the world. These disciples are. And Steve Skinner as a believer is. So he's differentiating between that. And it's important to notice the very first couple of verses here, the first 16 verses are Jesus talking to the disciples and then I'm convinced when you get to 517, he stands up so he can be heard, although he's still teaching. And then he starts projecting to the crowds. And he's aware he's got two different types of audience members. Phyllis has got believers who need discipleship truth. He's got unbelievers who need to be deprogrammed from the idea they can save themselves by being good Jews. And he says, don't think anything I'm about to say is putting down the Old Testament law. I'm the fulfillment of the law. I'm not saying don't obey the law. I'm saying forget about using that as a ladder you're going to use to try to climb up to God. Don't think I came to abolish the law. I'm going to fulfill it. And he moves from that trajectory to verse 20. For I say to you that your best can't possibly get you to heaven. And he says that by looking at the most righteous people in Judaism in his day. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that, of the scribes and the Pharisees who were scrupulous about the external obedience and obligations of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a better righteousness than the Pharisees can crank out, and nobody could crank out better human righteousness than they could. 
So he's not teaching salvation by works, but I have, I've heard um, certain speakers on radio, I'm going to talk about one in a minute, that just cite verses like this to say, well, of course, you've got to believe the dogmas of the church, but you're saved by your merit. They just flat say it on radio. My, Debbie occasionally has heard me listen to this radio show when we're driving somewhere. She says, I can't believe you said that. I said, usually they're not that clear, but people use a verse like verse 20 saying you've got to be more righteous than the most righteous Jews in, in Jesus' days. That means you've got to be a really good Baptist, a really good Lutheran, or a really good TBF or whatever it is. Uh, people actually use that to teach salvation by good works. And you rip that out of context, Jack, it looks like it could mean that. But you can't rip it out of context. What he's teaching here is the impossibility of salvation by works. Because if the Pharisees are not good enough, who could be, right? Let's think about Paul's. Can you think of a, a good Pharisee that thought he could earn his way into heaven? I've already given it away, right? Who wrote 13 New Testament books. Look at Philippians chapter 3. Let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about the fallacy, the error of assuming you can be a good enough Jew to earn your way to heaven. Right? Philippians chapter 3. He's warning about people that are teaching you can earn salvation by being a really, really good person. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, if anybody could have enough confidence, they might be a good enough person uh, to go to heaven. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh and what they can do in their own physical strength to be a good person and go to heaven based on that, I, I can beat anybody. I, I know if he's just being honest here. He was the most religious person he ever met, right? I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the Old Testament law of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. We were the most strict, scrupulous group in Judaism to obey the law to the letter. Literally, but not the spirit, unfortunately. As to zeal, I wasn't just a really good Pharisee. I persecuted people we thought were rejecting salvation by the law, like Jesus and Christians. I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is found in the law from an external a point of view of obeying the rules as best you can. I'm blameless. I'm better than anybody I know. But whatever things like that were gained to me, I've counted as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. I count anything I could stack up to try to earn my way to heaven to be worthless in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things. Literally, he lost his job, his pension, he lost his whole theological assumption that he could be a good enough Jew and earn his way to heaven. And I count them but rubbish that I could have Christ. And watch this. How do you get to heaven? you got to be found in Christ, in him, not having a righteousness of your own. I'm reading the second person there. He says, of my own, derived from the law. But that, the righteousness you need to go to heaven, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Salvation is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. It's not what David Demerson does for God, it's what Jesus Christ has done for him, right? Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. But it's not enough to get our sins forgiven. We need a perfect righteous standing, and you can't crank it out by obeying rules, because you're not going to obey the rules perfectly, but if you're going to obey rules to try to get to heaven, angel would be the Old Testament law, because God gave that to Moses at Sinai. 
But Paul's saying, as far as I was concerned, externally, I did as good as you could do, and that's worthless. It doesn't work. It can't work. So go back to Matthew 5.20. Looking at selected slivers here, some really especially important statements from Jesus Christ. He says, uh, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that which the most religious people in the world can crank out, you're not going to make it. And and I think the average honest listener would have said, well, then i got no chance. I can't save myself. That's exactly what he wants them to conclude. I can't save you. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. 38 years as a pastor, 31 years, here, six and a half, almost seven, this report. Is that going to help me be saved, stay saved? No, it's got nothing to do with it. You know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Let's look at some other verses real real quickly. Uh, we're going to do our, let our fingers do the walking. Usually I'll put them on the PowerPoint, but I was very convicted. I was watching a YouTube video from Dallas Seminary the other day, and they said, if you always put everything on the PowerPoint slide, because people only have a seven-second attention span here, they're not even going to know where those verses are when they go home. So let's kind of look them up. Let's look at Acts 16. But I'm going to go pretty fast, although some of you have faster fingers than I do. In my old days, my fingers have gotten really dry. So I'm not sure what that means. More flaxseed oil maybe I need? More MSN, David, about that help? My fingers are really dry in my old days. As a young kid, they were really slimy, which was good as a pitcher because you put a little extra spin on it, or at least I thought I could. Um, I say this a lot. This is the only place in Scripture where somebody directly asks this exact question, although the Lord gets asked a similar thing. In Acts 16.30, Paul, who's uh, in a jailhouse, he's in the Philippian jailhouse for preaching the gospel. Uh, the jailer says to him in the middle of a crisis, what must I do to be saved? That'd be a good place, Cade, to find out what you got to do to be saved, I'd say, huh? What does Paul say? Become a really good Jew, if possible a Pharisee, and keep the law as best you can. Now, what does he say? Believe in or on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. In your household, men, women, boys, and girls will be saved if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean if you believe, everybody in your family gets saved automatically. It means anybody, male, female, Gentile Jew doesn't really matter. He's talking to a non-Jew there, right? Uh, John 6, what must we do to do the works of God? Believe on the Messiah whom God has sent, Jesus says. It's the same question, same answer. Look at Titus 3. I know James is especially fond of Titus 3. I mean, he likes it all. He likes the entire Bible. But uh, look at Titus 3. And this is one of those passages that's really nice and clear, but it isn't cited as much as some of, like John 3.16. And there are probably reasons for that. But look at this. Uh, to the extent that Americans think much about Christianity, they think that Connie Norton just thinks she's a good Christian because she's a better person and she goes to church, and some of them don't. And she, they kind of resent the fact that she thinks she's better than they are. And she doesn't think she's better than they are. But that's kind of the caricature. Now, some of the haters out there, some of the people that get real shrill when the movie camera or TV camera's on, maybe give that impression. Sometimes we're a little too self-righteous, and we can uh, confuse people with what we're, we're thinking and saying. But look what the Word of God says over and over on every page, basically. Look at Titus 3, verse 4. When the kindness of God, he's the initiator, we're the receivers. He's doing it for us, we're not doing it for him. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. He is the subject of the clause there. Subject produces the action of the verb. Us, 
That's the direct object. We receive the action of the verb. Remember that from grammar? He, God, saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not even obeying the law of God, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, that being justified, declared righteous legally in God's sight by his grace, we'd be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's get another one. This is my favorite one, Romans 3, verse 20. Somebody said, if you're really a theologian, your Bible will automatically open Romans 3 because you'll spend so much time in Romans 3. And my Bible doesn't open Romans 3, so I guess I don't spend enough time in Romans 3. I love it. Sin, salvation, sovereignty, and service are the four big themes in uh, Romans. And 3.20 ends the sin portion. Salvation starts in 3.21. So let's overlap a little bit. Look at Romans 3.20. By the works of the law, if any works could save you, it would be the works of God's law. But not even those works can save anybody. No one will be justified in God's sight. For through the law doesn't come a ladder to heaven, but knowledge of sin that we need somebody else to save us, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been fully manifested, consistent with the Old Testament, talking about the righteousness of God, which Ken Wander received through faith in Jesus Christ, and applies to all who believe. Nobody's so good they don't need it. Nobody's so bad they can't have it. But there is no distinction because all of us have sinned and fall Fallen short of the glory of God. But those who believe are justified as a gift. It's a gift, not something you achieve. By his grace, unmerited favor through the redemption. Jesus is paying for all of it, not 99.9. Which is in Christ Jesus, who God the Father displayed publicly as a satisfaction of his righteous wrath on the cross. And we receive it through faith in him. Drop down to verse 27. Where then is boasting? Here's the big question. Who gets the credit for your salvation? Who gets the glory for your salvation? Who does the work for your salvation? In Christianity, it's Jesus Christ. We had a wonderful fellowship uh, Thursday night of some of the folks that went to the Israel trip. And I love some of uh, Dustin's comments about when you go over there, you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you see a lot of ritual and, and religion and stuff like that. And you can miss the real key thing. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. Jesus died to pay my sin debt and rose again, and I want him to. And he gets all the glory because he gets all the work. That's the essence of it. So where's boasting? Where's the, who gets credit for Paul's salvation, according to Philippians 3? Paul thought he could do it himself until he got kind of cold water in his face. Uh, where's boasting? It's, exclu- it's excluded. There's nothing for the savees. We're the savees. Jesus is the savior. It's excluded. By what kind of standard? By, are we saved by works? No, we're saved by the law of faith. Faith is just the empty hand that receives the merits. For we maintain that a person, a man, that's a person, that's angel as much as Dustin, is justified, given a righteous standing by, uh, before God by faith apart from the works of the law or anybody else's, any other kind of works. Okay? Uh, look at Luke 18. Please remember Luke 18 when I'm when I'm gone, okay? Verses 9 through 14. Our best isn't good enough. Jesus tells this parable to people who trusted in themselves. They were righteous enough to go to heaven because they were really good Jews and viewed everybody else with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, a really, really good rule keeper. 
and the other a tax collector who was a traitor to the Jewish nation in many people's minds and was pretty corrupt. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, trying to impress other people, probably out loud. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like this guy. You see him, that pitiful little piece of humanity, sinful humanity over there, God, in case you don't miss him, there he is. How dare he even come to the temple at all? I fast twice a week. The Old Testament law says you got to do it once a year. So he's doing it a lot more, 103 times more. I pay tithes on everything, you know, before taxes. But the tax collector, who probably has broken all Ten Commandments multiple times, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to look up to heaven in his humility, in his awareness of his sin and his inability, was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, based on your promises of the Messiah. And Jesus says, I tell you, that guy, the dirty sinner who did nothing but throw himself on God's mercy based on faith in Messiah, went home justified rather than the other guy. That's pretty strong, isn't it? That'll blow away Jehovah's Witness theology, all the major theologies of the major religions, like real quick. That's all you need, man. And it's all over the place. How about the terrorist on the cross? Terrorist on the cross wasn't a thief. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. They only crucified terrorists, anti-Roman zealots, right? And so that was what they said Jesus was dangerous to the Roman government, which, of course, he wasn't. But uh, what does he say? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What did he offer, Jesus? Nothing. What did he have to offer? Nothing. That's where you want to be, okay? When the Spirit convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, you realize, I got nothing. That's that's where you got to be. And this is a culture that won't say that. I mean, they can make... They can miss 60 out of 100 questions and they wonder why they made a 40. They come in and talk to the professor. I don't really, I don't understand. I don't understand why I made such a bad. Well, you left half of them blank. This was all in the study sheet, by the way. I mean, things have changed since you took me, Lori. I mean, they didn't change since you took me. And that was only a couple of years ago, Dustin. It's, it's crazy the stuff that they say. Sometimes they have your, their mom write you nasty emails and stuff. It's, it's insane, man. We could go on, but let's go to the next verse. Okay, let's go to Matthew 5.48. Matthew 5.48. Now, if you look at that, forget about context. We're not worrying about context here because nobody else cares about it. Of course, we do care about it. Let's just start where most people, including most Christians are. Verse 48, this is Jesus talking. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the radio show I'm talking about is called Call to Communion. It's on the uh, uh, EWTN, the Eternal Word Television Network, which also has a radio branch. It's, a, it's an official Roman Catholic uh, radio program, uh, network, and from 1 to 2 o'clock every day, which is a lot of times when I'm driving to the post office or whatever, doing some errands, I listen to this, and the show's called Called to Communion, and Dr. David Anders is the guy that answers all the questions, all your tough questions against Catholicism. And when he's saying, well, of course you have to have faith in the dogmas of the church, not active, receptive trust that Jesus can save you. And that's not what they're talking about when they say faith. You've got to believe the dogmas of the church, whatever the Pope says is true this week, you know, and that can change sometimes. But you've got faith in the dogma of the church. You've got to believe in God and stuff like that. But you, you're not saved just by faith. Are you kidding? You've got to be saved by works. The Bible teaches that. Jesus says, and he quotes this verse all the time, occasionally 520, but he, he quotes almost every single time he goes here, um, the verse we just read, verse 48, 
Jesus said, you are to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. But here's the thing. Very few Catholics, very few people are perfect when they die. So they don't go to heaven. But they don't go to hell either. Where do they go? Purgatory. Where do you find purgatory in the New Testament? It ain't there, man. You find the Old Testament? It's not there. But you've got to be purged. God's got to make you perfect. Not, not accounted, reckoned for, have a righteousness, not on my own, but through faith in Christ. Now you've got to have your own righteousness. This got to be, your sin's got to be purged out of you. That's a whole different thing. Now, not everybody who goes to Catholic Church understands that or believes that, but that's the official position of that institution. And this is one of the verses they used to prove that. I mean, it says it right in your Bible there, Brad. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, context and original language help, okay? First of all, you guys know, when you see therefore, what are you supposed to do? Look back and see what is therefore. Verse 48 is the end of a paragraph that starts in verse 43. So let's see what he's talking about. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor... That comes from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Old Testament law. So the Pharisees believed in loving their neighbor. The people they thought were righteous enough that merited their love is what they interpreted to mean. And hate your enemy. Where does it say that in the Old Testament? It doesn't say that. But that's the way the Pharisees spun that affirmation. Love your neighbor, which means it's okay to hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. This, this is what the Old Testament really means. And love there isn't an emotion, it's agape, it means a, a volitionally, it's a choice, it's volition, not emotion, it's a choice to show other people um, concern, and even to serve them if possible. I say to you, it frees you up to serve them. Love your enemies, and one way you can love them is by praying for those who persecute you, okay? That's a function of agape love. So you may be kind of like the Father. To be sons of the Father means to not be regenerate, but be kind of like him in that trait, who in heaven, because God doesn't just let the sun rise on good people. He doesn't let the rain fall just on the good people. God causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain, recently we had some, uh, on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then he says, so he's talking about we need to be comprehensive in our targets for agape love, trying to seek other people's highest good, and even serve them if we can. For if you love, if you agape, only those who love you, what reward you have? He's thinking about rewards for believers in heaven. Even tax collectors do that. They're the worst kind of tax collectors, not the ones that come to the temple, contrite, recognizing their guilt and inability and expressing faith in the Messiah. If you greet only, you know, you remember this recognition, acknowledgement, endorsement, three levels of affirmation, uh, textbook and communication, I mean, we have this cancel culture. It is weird. But I have students, I've had other people I've known that have just checked me off as I don't exist anymore. They wouldn't even, if they bump into me, they act like they don't even know who I am. It's, it's strange, you know? Because some of my students come up and they're so friendly and so happy, probably because they don't have to ha- take me anymore. And others act like I don't exist, or they kind of go like this, you know, when they walk past. It's weird. But yeah, this whole cancel culture, if they find out you said something 40 years ago, unless you're a hard liberal, uh, we're just going to act like you don't exist, is not a good way to live a Christian life. In fact, it's a very non-biblical way to live a Christian life. And it's what he's saying. If you greet only those, if you don't even affirm people, uh, only affirm people you like or that are nice to you, that uh, tell you how great you are all the time, greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? I mean, unbelievers do that. I mean, anybody can do that. Therefore, talking about love your enemies, not just your neighbors, show concern for everybody to the extent you can. 
Therefore, you are to be perfect. That word for perfect, teleos, means comprehensive or complete. It doesn't mean sinlessly righteous. It doesn't mean perfect in that sense. It means comprehensive. Look it up in any good commentary to tell you that. So he's just talking here not that we're supposed to live a sinless life because we can't. We're not going to live a perfectly sinless life. Paul says we all, James says we stumble in many ways. What does Paul say? Walk in the Spirit so you won't carry out the desire of the sin nature. Which means if you're not walking in the Spirit, you will. You know? And I tell you, the moving process brings out a, the worst of my sin nature. I know you find that hard to believe, but I can get very, very finicky and picky. and It's just not, it's an ugly thing to see. So we're not filming any of the move here, just so you'll know. Uh, I'm going to get to Tulsa and confess it all, and I'm being good shit. Uh, this doesn't teach we're supposed to live a perfect life. It teaches that believers should agape, should show love. Keep the bridge, keep, you always keep the bridge open on your side. You never close it, because God changes people. Uh, serving those who don't or won't serve us, who might not even recognize our existence anymore, is a key to true Christ-likeness. Loving the unlovely, not just the cool. And Jack, this is a great thing for you. I mean, you're a football hero, Marlo. You're almost a legend. You're this far away from being a living legend. But, are you going to be nice and friendly and remember the names of people who aren't on the football team? Uh, who aren't cool, who aren't beautiful, who aren't white, who aren't well-connected, uh, who aren't powerful. He's a big man on campus. He didn't like to talk about it, but he is. I mean, I mean just physically. No, he's, he's a big man on campus. But, I mean, that's a big part of our Christian testimony, right? Uh, the nerds of the world need your agape, okay, even if you are a football star. And I was just a golfer, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, not just the high-powered baseball and golf stars of... Uh, a middle school or high school. Um, I think a real convicting question is, how do you treat people who can do absolutely nothing for you? I mean, a lot of people, if you're a teller, you're going to be nice to Ben Harrington. He's the president of the bank. I mean, you, you better be. You're not going to insult him, right? Uh, if you work for Duncan Public Schools, you better be nice to Lori. She controls all the money, right? But how do you treat people who can do absolutely nothing for you? Um, I always felt like people... The way they treat children can show you something. Uh, when Sadie walked out with the uh, during the going out song, she had that long dress on. She just kind of floated out. It's just so beautiful. Um, when we came back from Tulsa, we took a trailer load up there on Friday and came back yesterday through Edmond. Um, and uh, it had been several months since I'd seen the girls, uh, Eloise, Violet, and Vivian plus Lincoln. Uh, but they are so be- they're so beautiful. I mean, I know I'm biased. But I got the most beautiful granddaughters in the world in history. <laughs> just so you'll know. But you know what? Here's the thing. A lot of time, beautiful little girls, all they ever hear is how beautiful they are. And you, you should note that, but you need to look for their character. You don't want to raise young women in this culture with the only positive thing they ever hear is about their looks. Because that's going to go away and that's going to lead you in some paths you don't want to go. It needs to be, uh, about character, and I know that uh, Dustin and Angel are careful about that. But yeah, they, those girls are are really beautiful. Okay, you know I th- I think I may come back to seven one next week, but let's look at one more for our purposes this morning. Let's look at Matthew six one, and this is one I've you know I've hammered away at a lot for thirty one years, but I think it's really important that uh, we're clear on this one. Because it does come up. 
And let me read uh, Matthew 6, 1 from the New American Standard Bible. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before people. I'm stopping on purpose. I know it goes on. But this is the way people understand it. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before people. Now again, uh, go back to, hold your place there and go to uh, chapter 5, verse 16. There was a, a booklet called 136 Bible Contradictions that was circulated through a magazine called uh, Skeptical Inquirer many years ago. And you read a book like that, you're almost saying, oh, I wonder what they found, you know. And literally 90% of those so-called contradictions are just misinterpreting either the first verse or the other one. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous, some of the stuff people throw. Uh, next time somebody says, and you're going to bump into this in the medical field, you know, you're going to talk to some really cool surgeon or something, he's going to find out you believe the Bible, you're Christian, He's going to say, hey, you can't believe the Bible's full of contradictions. I think it's helpful to say, uh, well, why do you feel that way? And can you name one? Well, I had a college professor who said it. Okay, well, that proves it. Because, listen, not everything college professors say are necessarily correct. You know, I mean, I know it myself because I've goofed myself a few times. Uh, it's interesting if you ask them, name one, they can very rarely name one. But one that has come up, at least it was in that booklet, 136, 136 Bible Contradictions, is... Surely, what Jesus says in Matthew 5.16 and what Jesus says in Matthew 6.1, just a chapter apart from each other, they've got to be contradictory. Because we just read 6.1, which Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before people. And then in 5.16, chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Let your light shine before people in such a way they may see you. I'm not reading the whole thing, because if you only read parts of those, they sound like contradiction. He says, hey, let your let people see your good works. Then he says, don't do righteousness before people. You know you got to read the whole thing, right? James already did way ahead of us here. Yeah, go back to 6.1. Got to read the whole verse. And again, we can talk about context here. What he's basically saying is, in fact, that's not it. That's, that's next week. Go back to six one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be noticed by them, to try to impress them, rather than trying to glorify God to ingratiate yourself or to get them to think you're cool or righteous or whatever. Beware of doing good things in front of people as your audience to please or to impress them, to be noticed by them, because that's not real. That's not rewardable. And then he says, when you give your money, when you pray, and when you fast, do that, those good things for the right reasons. Don't do it for human applause, but for the glory of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before people to be noticed by them. Okay? Otherwise, you're just doing rituals. It doesn't matter. Anybody can do that. Now go back to 5.16 and re- read the whole verse again. He says, let your light shine before people in such, and don't just stop there. In such a way, that they'll see Dustin go to church, or they'll see uh, Angel do something for a patient or for a physician that's not required, but over and above. Let your light shine before people in such a way they may see your good works and be impressed by you. Think you're really righteousness? Righteous? What, what, what does he say? Do it in such a way they'll glorify your Father who's in heaven. Do your do the right thing the right way. What do we call those things, Olga? Not good works, what do we call them? Call them good, good works. You know, what this passage is teaching is spirituality is about a relationship, not about just obeying the rules. And in fact, some, maybe many, 
visible good works that even clergy do may not be righteous at all for doing them for the wrong reasons. Jesus is interested not what you do, but why you're doing it, right? So, and many of you heard me say that 50 times, but trust me, a lot of people can't put that together. 516, let your light shine before men, be salt, be light, but in such a way, it's obvious that you're doing it for Jesus and it's not a huge thing and you're not trying to impress people and you're not going to get your feelings hurt nobody pats you on the head and tells you how great you are because you're not doing it for that reason at all. Then go back to 6.1, don't stop halfway through. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. That's the problem. It's not doing, of course we're supposed to do good things that people can see if they're looking, but we're not doing it to impress them. We're doing it uh, to glorify God. So 6.1 is telling, ta- emphasizing why we do what we do. 5.16, let your light shine, is talking about uh, what we're trying to accomplish, not ourselves being uh, magnified, but God being glorified kind of thing. So I like to say, let your light shine, but don't toot your own horn. And also when we talk about let your light shine, I mean, I like the analogy of the sun and the moon. You know, you go out on a full moon, you go, man, the moonlight is so bright. And there's some nights in our neighborhood when we have a full moon uh, that it's not really all that dark. I mean, it can be that bright. You guys have seen that. But how much light is the moon producing from a physical, astronomical point of view? It's just a dead rock. It's not producing any light. Where's the light coming from? It's the sunlight bouncing off. All that good stuff Homer does is that's Jesus bouncing off Homer. All that good stuff Ron Miller does, and by the way, you know what? Um, I had David Stribling pray this morning, and I was so glad that David got to uh, go to Israel. And uh, I was especially glad when I realized he's got like 5,000 pictures that I can access anytime I want to. So I'm really mad at night. But the thing about David was, uh, and I know he, he loved the trip, and I was so delighted he made the time and spent the money to go on the trip. But then, you know, after we kind of organized things, what really was important, Ron, with David, he was the only guy on the trip who was willing to room with you. So that, that was good, because a double occupancy. No, every, he, he thought it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure, right? Uh, no, he, he was the lucky one. I don't even believe in luck. Yeah, I mean, he's just obsessed with his appearance, you know. And also, he's he's not really tall. He just kind of jacks up these shoes he wears every day. He's actually 5'4", but after he jacks up his shoes, he's like 6'8", or whatever he is. Yeah, um, I'm going to stop there, and let me just go to where I'm going to finish next time and this time. Uh, I've got a really cool quote that's going I've, I've never cited before. Uh, next week when we come back to Matthew 7.1. I think Matthew 7.1 is really important for us to cover, and we'll take an extra time to do that, because you're going to have uh, this thrown in your face, Jack, eventually. Uh, the first time that you kind of make it clear in public in certain situations, you have to believe in traditional marriage and things like that, uh, people are going to say, hey, Jesus says, don't judge. Like that means make no moral decisions or evaluations about anything, including yourself. It can't mean that. How do I know that? I'll show you. Just read the next couple of verses. It explains it. But I got a really killer quote on that that I'm looking forward to. It's going to take me a little while to develop that. So let's just go to where we're going to finish next time also. We're going to stress here as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount that um, Jesus wants, to do the, wants us to do the right things for the right reasons. And all this is an effect of our salvation, not the cause. We like to call it Murray the fruit, not the root. 
right? And uh, let's apply those basic, basic premise to the mission, the engine, and the outreach program of TBF, because I think, you know, it all kind of lines up. The mission of TBF, which is, you know, it's in your bulletin, in front of the bulletin every week, uh, is to glorify God, not to promote uh, my pastoral career or anybody else's uh, career, by actively participating in the ongoing fulfillment of Great Commission. How can you say a little church in a little town like this is actively participated? Can you say Chichihar, China? Can you say uh, Jamasu, China? Can you say Mala? Can you say Mafrak, Jordan? I mean, the church has has been had a presence in those places, much ourselves, you know, real people, not just sending money to missionaries, and that's important to do too. As a body of believers from different denominational backgrounds, living as disciples of Jesus Christ, not disciples of Brad McCoy or the next pastor, who collectively together, especially on Sundays and Wednesdays and other times, and individually, even on prom night, serve our Savior and one another. So we're functioning as a spiritual greenhouse where we're catalyzed to grow and reproduce. So it's talking about reality, not just rituals, right? What's the spiritual engine? Well, I'm going to emphasize next time that uh, you might say the Sermon on the Mount tells you what we're supposed to do as disciples. The upper room discourse in John 13 through 17 tells you how. And the engine of that is relational connection with Jesus. It's an active abiding in Jesus. The spiritual engine of this church and, and every church, whether they put it in the bulletin or not, is each individual believer, each individual regenerate believer abiding in Christ. To abide in Christ is to recognize and respond from the heart to the one who has saved you. It's exactly analogous to saving faith. Saving faith is responding from the heart to the one who can save you. It's active, receptive trust. Whereas abiding in Christ really is active service and response to, to Christ. You're doing it for him, not for anybody else. And even if we, you know, me and James, you know, being I think being a pastor is a calling, not just a job, not just a career. But it has vocational aspects, like a, like a paycheck. It's got vocational aspects. But I think you know, if you don't, if you get this out of whack, you're not going to stay anywhere for 31 years. You'll probably stay for 18 months or two years and do that for 10 times until somebody knows the pattern. But each individual believer abiding in Christ, not just the elders and the deacons and their wives, as a lifestyle, being personally committed to positive, plugged-in involvement, building up the body, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but other ministry services, activities, and then I put the old saying, let your light shine without tooting your own horn. And then uh, our outreach is about, you know, primarily, we've done all kinds of different outreach. We've knocked on doors. We've given people stuff. I gave them cookies. I remember we had Love You Duncan. And I was trying to, I realized, it's a good thing I'm not a cookie salesman. Because we had all the women make cookies. This was 20 years ago. And we're going to give everybody a bag of cookies, some information about the church, and uh, this and that. And this one person wouldn't open the door. And when she finally opened the door, I don't really look that Dangerous, do I? I'm kind of a geek, you know? And I said, hey, we're saying, I'm from team. I didn't say I'm the pastor, so you gotta listen to me. I, I want her to think I'm just a real person, not a pastor. Hey, I'm Brad McCoy, and here's whoever it was, Kate Gallagher, whoever was with me that day. And I said, we've got some information on our church, and we got some home baked cookies. And she said, who made those? <laughs> you know? I said, they're safe, but if you don't want them, that's okay, I'll take them, you know? But, uh, we tried all kinds of stuff. But I do think that, uh, uh, just sharing uh, Christ and the virtues of this church such as they are with people you already have a connection with, they're not plugged into a good church. Uh, I think that's the best way to make this happen. Okay, So I'm, I'm sorry this was a little disjointed today, more than than others, 
But next time, let's focus on uh, judge not, lest ye be judged, what that means. Uh, I covered that a while ago, not that far uh, ago, but I think it's worth emphasizing. Because that's if anybody in our culture has a favorite Bible verse, that's probably it. Because anytime you make any moral uh, designations at all, it's kind of like, how dare you force your morality on us? You mean, while the Supreme Court's forcing its morality down our throats? Yeah, it's okay for that, but but it doesn't mean what it sounds like. Uh, again, you know, one principle I hope you remember is the Bible and people don't necessarily mean what they say, but they always mean what they mean by what they say. And you need some context usually to figure that out. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have spoken and continue to speak through your word, and you do not stutter. But forgive us for ripping some of these verses out of context, and not just reading at least the whole paragraph. I mean, you make it pretty clear. We're so thankful, even though there are some things hard to understand in the Bible, the main things are plain things, and you you repeat them a lot. Uh, sin's bad, hell's hot, uh, you are gracious, Christ died for our sins, so we don't have to die in our sins. And we can be saved. Even the worst person, even the best person needs this through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that, you know, as we um, give our Lord Jesus 100% credit for our salvation and live our Christian life from that premise. So it's not about us. It's really about him. I pray that you help us to more willingly share and pray for and even serve those who don't or won't serve us. And help us to to never substitute rituals or even just regular church attendance and involvement for a dynamic, regular, daily, moment-by-moment walk with you. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.